electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Bring in show music, please. Hi there, I'm CNBC producer Cameron Costa. Today on Squawk Pod, oil producers making a big move. OPEC and allies of Russia announced a cut to output, and now global inflation and geopolitics hang in the balance of their decision. California Representative Ro Khanna. I don't know whether their motivation was to strengthen Putin, but here's the fact, it does strengthen Putin. I don't know whether their motivation was to hurt the American people, but the fact is it does hurt the American people. What exactly happened in Vienna? And what does it mean for the energy grid, the gas pumps, and the climate goals here at home? CNBC's Brian Sullivan. The government needs to do a better job explaining to the American people this simple fact. You can hate hydrocarbons and fossil fuels. You can love windmills and solar, but they do very different things. That big story, plus another day, another Twitter Musk update. Give me a 30% discount. No. Give me a 10% discount. No. Which just leads me back to wondering whether this is a real offer and whether the deal gets done. It's Thursday, October 6th, 2022, and Squawk Pod begins right now. Stand Becky by in three, two, one, cue please. Good morning. Welcome to Squawk Box here on CNBC. We're live from the Nasdaq market site in Times Square. I'm Becky Quick along with Joe Kernan and Andrew Ross Sorkin. We're starting today's podcast, as we usually do, with a couple of news stories that really got us talking, like a follow-up to yesterday's big story, Elon Musk's deal to buy Twitter. If you want a full rundown of the timeline, when and how and why Elon changed his mind, when and how and why the Twitter board changed its mind, and the inside scoop on how the world's richest and possibly the world's busiest man is going to pull it off, check out yesterday's episode of Squawk Pod in your feed. But for now, an update. Here's Becky. All right, let's get to the latest in Elon Musk's decision to move ahead with his purchase of Twitter. The Wall Street Journal reports that Musk and Twitter quietly held unsuccessful talks about a possible cut to the price of $44 billion for that social media platform before Musk reversed course on Monday and told Twitter he would return to the originally agreed upon terms. The New York Times reports that Musk initially sought a 30 percent discount and then a 10 percent discount before saying, OK, I will agree to the initial price. The journal says that as of late yesterday, Musk and Twitter were still hashing out details of his proposal, including what would be needed for litigation to be dropped and whether the deal's closing would be contingent on Musk receiving debt financing. Here's my take on this. OK, give me a 30 percent discount. No. Give me a 10% discount. No. Okay, let's do the contingency then that I'll pay the original price, but if the debt financing doesn't come through, I'll have to pay us a billion dollars and walk away. And Twitter is probably righteously saying no to that too, which just leads me back to wondering whether this is a real offer and whether the deal gets done. And I, I, all of those people who were doing arbitrage, Carl Icahn, D.E. Shaw, um, Dan Loeb, doing arbitrage to say that the deal was going to go through, they made a right. ton of money when the stock popped. If they were smart, they probably sold at 52 and change instead of waiting for the 5420. Oh, that may very well to get, be. To get out of it, to say, okay, because the risk assessment right. at that point 
I was going to say two things. So, I, uh, unfortunately, as I was uh, attempting to atone yesterday on Yom Kippur, <laughs> I was uh, taking phone calls and making phone calls about this. And what was really happening, interestingly, was he had made a couple of proposals, uh, some around originally more than 30%, actually, trying to get a cut, as you might imagine. Then I believe it actually went to 25 and 20. Yeah before 10. 10 was the last one that was even thrown into but the I'm bucket. But I'm sure, I mean, this was him but, saying it, Twitter just saying no. Well, right? it was a little, I would say, and this is the part that actually got interesting, and I think that there's a bit of a debate between both sides about what was really happening. Uh, somewhere when 10% was thrown out there, and there's a debate about how the 10% was thrown out there and who threw it out, and what, there was a, a conversation that, from my understanding, that was Twitter saying, look, we're not gonna talk about the number. But actually, what we really need to talk about is how you would close this deal. Let's, we'll talk number later, but clearly there's contractual issues here about certainty of closing. And not just certainty of closing, this is where it gets interesting. There's already an agreement that indemnifies the board, uh, that pays compensation out, not just to management, but you know, there's a, a, a plan where he's gonna, um, those who are gonna be paid stock over time, supposed right. to get cash. I think there's great fear inside Twitter that, that, he is, gets. that he is, that, that the deal will close, even with certain things in the contract, that he will not abide by the contract. And so there became another con conversation as part of, before you even get to that, about reassurances, effectively, rearticulation. Oh, rearticulation of probably 10 to 15, 20 points that are in the contract already to effectively reaffirm. I am agreeing to these things. So I think there was, there was a whole sort of plethora of issues that were sort of thrown back into the bucket, in part because there's a view that if you weren't going to agree to the deal the first time, who knows what you're going to... you're going to stand by and abide So I think this part time, of it was right. certainty, 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 well, and, and what kind way, of date you could set. Be, this would now be a deal with the Delaware Chancery Court. So it, it, I think Twitter is saying it's no longer going to be us to, on us to enforce it. It's going to well, be I on think the Delaware the, court who's kind of going to be responsible for it. That's the next part of this. I think the new effort on this, on if in fact this 5420 is now back on the table, if we think that's even true, is, and this isn't done deal, but I think the effort is that Twitter would, is seeking or is trying to seek what's called a, um, a, uh, a consent judgment. Right, which, which, effectively would, mean, which would mean the would Delaware court is Would force the court to, yeah. to enforce. Yeah. There's other methods that are also on the table, or methods, um, the equivalent of a ticking fee. Could you add uh, an interest fee since closing? The deal was supposed to have closed on September, I believe, 17th or 18th. Could you, could you enforce a, effectively a, an interest fee that you continue to pay until the deal closes? Could you, by the way, add a higher ticking fee yeah. uh, than that? I think there's a lot of different things that are being thrown into the soup in the past 24 the only hours thing I'll add to this. in terms of the talks that are back and forth. I had Jim Stewart on last night right. in the 6 p.m. hour, and he's a Harvard Law graduate. He brought up a really interesting point that one of the th reasons that Musk might have agreed to this original terms is because if he lost in Delaware, in Delaware court, the court could do a couple of things. One would be to say, okay, you have to go through the, with this, but Jim's interpretation is that Delaware judges don't like to say you've got to consummate the deal. The other thing they could do is award damages. And it, there was a very clear idea of what the damages would be, what the original offer was and how far it's come down with him trashing the, trashing the company along the way. The stocks come back up. So the damages part of that, if you go to court, might be harder to prove, right. although if okay. the, the stock's up because of the because price. Because the price right. being there, right. Well, I have still to damaged. say, and right. I do love Jim, 
Stewart this is. Um, I disagree. I think that this judge has a track record has a track record now of forcing deals to complete. This is not this is actually it's not like a theoretical thing. This specific judge has done this before. So the idea of specific performance is actually a... Let me not say that Jim said that both those ideas were possible. He just thought the damages won. If she awarded damages and said, you don't get the company, but you got to pay billions of dollars in damages and walk away. People already had him in prison stripes. So that is the last time. Prison stripes. Delaware can't send him to... (laughs) Chancery Court's not sending him to prison. Right. That was... But they could take his assets. That was postulated. If he said no, people said that. People... You didn't say, you know definitively, but you no. said there's always a possibility if, he, if they no. told him to buy it, he said no. Well, we've had, we've had discussions, how do you hold somebody right. civilly in contempt of court? The view has always been, I think, that a De- the Delaware, given what the kind of court that they run, could effectively try to take assets from you or right. ensnare your assets or, you know, you have titles in public corporations like Tesla and SpaceX. Could you, you know, could you not be able to work? I mean, I think no. there's... Those are the kinds of things you'd be able to do before you'd be able to send somebody to prison. But I just remember I that he, uh, I remember seeing all the Twitter stuff. Someone said, it, uh, maybe on our air, and they were like mad, all the Tesla Aaron's. No, I'm not saying that they said, I'm saying <laughs> oh. that it's true that someone did postulate yeah. Yeah. that. State of Louisiana announcing it will pull nearly $800 million from BlackRock funds, the state's treasury saying it is making that move over the asset management firm's push to embrace ESG strategies. said that shift would cripple Louisiana's critical energy sector. It's already pulled $560 million from BlackRock, which faces increasing pressure over its ESG policies from Republican-led states and groups. And what's so fascinating to me about this is the tactics that, frankly, liberal and progressive states have used for so many years in terms of how they've used their treasuries and pension funds to try to influence policies. It's historically something that red states have not done because they've always argued that they believe in free markets and they believe that that is actually a terrible tactic to use, that you shouldn't be trying to use your shares to influence these things. And so now we're in a situation where we're going to be, I believe, in this sort of red state, blue state battle that's not just over politics this broadly. This is actually for a good thing that but, they're using the but, pressure for. But, but <laughs> well, you can debate that. But. But, no, I know. But I'm the kidding. interesting part about this is really now I think you're going to get into this sort of unique divide over effectively investment products, which is sort of a new yeah. feature of the market and I don't think has been uh, – well, we'll see how far it goes. But I do but, wonder yeah, if there. it puts pressure on ESG and makes it go away because nobody wants to lose half their clients. You know, you start looking through. Nobody wants to get politicized or pointed in, painted into a corner where you're only serving – 50%. Remember you watched oh, in, in horror when Tom Cotton said he's sending Larry Fink to jail. A hundred percent. That's what I mean. Well, this is not new. This has been, it's been happening. But, and but and t- there's a push, there's, there's a real pushback on, on a lot of this. No, no. And, but and and you're I'm, saying from both sides. Well, now I'm saying what's so interesting is now this right. tactic, which is, I mean, if you, if you are a free marketeer, on that but, side, but then if that is your view, you're using the, the tactics to, to try to be to try to enact free market policies. Well, and that, but and then so the, you, you got a double a, negative there. No, but you're the trying question. to get to the free Should, market. You're well, not using the free market to get to the free market. Is that what you're saying? Well, and then there's the secondary issue, which is, and, and I would make this argument um, of the sort of more liberal states, blue states, that have used some of these tactics. Historically, what we've all talked about at this table a million times is that those policies 
have actually not helped their pension funds. And so there's been his, his uh, finger pointing right. left and right over, you know, CalPERS getting out of this or getting out of that. And then five years later, or 10 years later, there's some study that says that their pension fund, their pensioners money? lost X amount of money. And so, the pensioners say, just make us whole. And some of the pensioners right. just say, make us whole. Make so, us whole. Your job is to manage, your fiduciary right. responsibility a, is to manage money. I think that it becomes very interesting very quickly. But quick. the point's being made that, that Fiduciaries at this point would be buying underpriced hydrocarbon assets. So you, I, I don't think oh, you'd well, have the bad performance this time. Maybe. I mean, so the, that's what I, I said that's right at the top. Point, right, right at the too. top, I said, well, this is red states using it for actually right. good things rather than blue well, states and, using it for the, well, the, the culture wars. Well, but then the other issue is. This is economic, you, not culture well, wars. Well, but here's the fiduciary question. And this, is always, this has always been the political question. Is your fiduciary, you know, someone at, at CalPERS might say, my fiduciary duty is to teachers and to, um, you know, to nurses and to whatever it is. And part of my fiduciary duty is to them and their livelihood, right? So then now, we're, but I'm your just saying. Your duty is to make sure that it, you are managing right. your pensions. Is so it to their livelihood? But this goes to what Louisiana is doing. Louisiana is saying this is going to hurt the livelihoods of people specifically in the state. Same which, thing. by the way, is a completely ridiculous argument in this particular case, I would argue. But... And that's why I'm saying it's, it's, it goes back and forth. Yeah, they should focus on their fiduciary responsibilities. We got some news just out this morning from IBM ahead of President Biden's visit to its facility in New York today. The company now saying it plans to invest $20 billion across the Hudson Valley region of New York in the next 10 years. Try to boost innovation related to semiconductors, artificial intelligence, quantum computing and more. That move coming days after Micron announced a $100 million commitment to build a chip factory center in New York. So uh, I think IBM's winning that competition with Micron in terms of dollar numbers. But, um, it also means some huge dollars coming into New York, I think. Some of the politicians here in the state yep. have been working for that. It's a big deal. It's a big deal for, for the tax base of New York. When we talk about like who's, who's staying and who's going. Cheese will be next. Coming up on Squawk Pod, we're headed into the oil patch the big decision from OPEC and Russia to cut oil output and interpreting Saudi Arabia's message to us with that announcement. California Representative Ro Khanna. They need the United States of America more than anything. We supply the parts for their air force. We provide them with weapons. It would take them years to transition to China or Russia. Plus, the message we could be sending right back. There should be bipartisan outrage and a demand that they reverse the system or there will be consequences. We're back after this. From their innovative practice facility to unmatched views from the fairway, the PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with 5G solutions from T-Mobile for Business. Together, we're using AI-powered analytics to expand coaching tools and bringing fans closer to the pros with 5G-connected cameras. This is game-changing innovation. This is the PGA of America with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager.
You are listening to Squawk Pod from CNBC. I'm your MC, if you will, Cameron Costa. The rest of today's episode is all about energy. This week, OPEC, the group of oil producers led by Saudi Arabia plus 10 Russian-led allies, has announced a big cut to oil output. They're cutting by 2 million barrels a day. That's about 2% of the world's supply. Now, it seems drastic, it's a lot, admittedly, but if we look closer at the numbers, we can see that many OPEC member countries haven't been hitting their output quotas. So, 2 million on paper, but in practice, it comes out to only about 900,000 barrels cut per day. It's a curious number, because 900,000 is about what the United States has been releasing from our strategic petroleum reserve in an effort to calm domestic energy prices. So you have to wonder whether this was a message from Saudi Arabia and Russia to the U.S. attempting to negate the work the United States has been doing to help itself. The output cut could also be a little bit of a disappointment for President Biden, as I'm sure you'll read in the papers today. He's been lobbying the Saudis for an increase in production. That was sort of the whole point of Biden's trip to the kingdom back in July. Shifting away from the U.S. dynamic, this decision is a harsh one for Europe, which is already facing a tough winter. In retaliation for the war in Ukraine, the EU has imposed multiple rounds of energy sanctions on Russia, including a full-on ban of most crude imports from Russia set for December. But a cut in output makes those plans more costly for Europe, as you'll hear. And finally, the last continent we're touching on today, South America. The White House is preparing to scale down sanctions on Venezuela, which means Chevron could resume pumping oil there. Our own Brian Sullivan is on the ground in Vienna to cover OPEC and all the rest. It's kind of hard not to look at this decision and say there's got to be some political element to it. Now, if you look at the papers this morning and CNBC.com, Dan Jurgen saying basically this was sort of a blow against the White House. Uh, the Wall Street Journal doing the same thing, sort of snubs Biden. The Financial Times, you see their headline there, sort of OPEC plus aligning with Russia. So this is being politicized, and many of our viewers will arguably agree that this is a political and some part decision. But last night, here late last night, about 8.39 p.m. Vienna time, I sat down with the Saudi energy minister, Prince Abdulaziz bin Salman. I tried to get into the politics of it. By the way, the full interview is up on CNBC.com. They're like, we're not going to talk about politics. They view that building behind us, Joe, as kind of like a, a Switzerland, if you will, being neutral. Instead... When I asked about the reasons for the cut, he didn't entirely blame the Federal Reserve and central banks, but he kind of did. Listen. Of course, any central banker in planet Earth would like to have the best of the two worlds, attending to inflation and continue growth. But with this severity that you see, you run a big risk that you lose growth. What is happening now is is coming, and we see we showed it in this trajectory and this uh, 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 things that we presented that growth is coming down, and there is a potential with more aggressive uh, um, um, rate hikes that this growth will come even lower. Your other story. Wall Street Journal late last night with an exclusive saying that the U.S. is looking to ease sanctions on Venezuela so that Chevron, not so that, but in part, Chevron will then be able to keep drilling and producing oil in Venezuela. I was in touch with Chevron last night. It was two in the morning here. 
5 whatever p.m. there. They would not confirm the entire story to me, but I got the sense. I'm not confirming it, but I will say it was directionally corrected. How about this? Chevron did not deny the story to me. Obviously, they don't want to get into the politics of it. But, Joe, that would be an easing of sanctions in Venezuela so that we could buy more, produce more oil there to import to the United States, kind of maybe trading OPEC and Russian oil for Venezuelan oil. Either way, Reistad Energy out with a note moments ago saying Brent crude back to 100 by Christmas, which would be 95 WTI, which would be about $4 a gallon gas. A lot of headlines today. The plus in OPEC plus is Russia and its allies. So I don't, it, it's not even making it political to say that this is something that Russia wants and it will help finance the war if prices stay high. So I don't even know. You know, that's just if he if, um, you know, he just wants to pretend that, that that's you know, not part of the equation. But it, it, you, know, you don't have to go to actually have a political tinge to just call what's happening, you know, in reality. Uh, and they're they're friends and they did. You know, you got Russians here and you got President Biden that went over and asked and we can we know who the Saudis sided with. It's it's really. Uh, pretty staggering, and, and it uh, it hurts the f- if we do have a. I wouldn't say we have a friendship with Saudi Arabia, but uh, it certainly hurts the relationship. This is what the, the Journal went on to say that the Biden White House has tried every gimmick to lower gas prices, except the one that would really matter: call off its political and regulatory campaign against American oil and gas production. But the administration won't do it because President Biden's too afraid that the climate left. Would, uh, would abandon him, that wants to do a ban fossil fuels. But that's very short-sighted. And if we gotta, there's got to be a bridge, Brian, or we're going to see some really bad things happen in different parts of the world, including you know, consumers in the U.S. Yeah. I, 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 well, and, oh, by the way, the U.K. this morning, National Grid warning, they may run out of heat and power this winter. Literally, there's headlines in the U.K. right now that there may not be enough heat and power in the winter. I think what from covering energy for as long as I have, the, the government, both parties, by the way, anybody, needs to do a better job explaining to the American people this simple fact. You can hate hydrocarbons and fossil fuels. You can love windmills and solar, but they do very different things. Yes, you can power electricity with a windmill that can power an electric car. I get that. But you can't use wind power to make plastics. The, the uses of the hydrocarbon are very different. And we have this sort of idea sometimes here, like, oh, just kill oil and go to wind and solar. That's fine for cars and for electricity. But you still also have to make the aluminum for the solar panel and the plastic and the carbon fiber for the wind turbine, all of which require natural gas, not a political. There's an electric car, by the way. Hi. Not, not a political statement. That's just facts. And what do we but call Brian, it now, Joe? Brian, Science. California's grid, can, if it was 3% EVs, that would uh, overload the grid in California right now. So wind and solar are not ready to power the grid for electric cars yet. You gotta build the grid first. That's right, you're exactly right. A Princeton University study last week said if you don't build out the grid, and this this is why everybody was saying, oh, the death of the mansion permitting bill inside the, the Inflation Reduction Act was such a big win against fossil fuels. No, it wasn't. It's gonna kill that Mountain Valley pipeline probably but it also would have helped speed up the permitting of the transmission and infrastructure lines to power wind and solar. Now those are going away. So if you're going to invest $10 billion, Joe, into a giant solar plant in Arizona, but you're not sure you can get the permits to build your power lines to the homes, would you spend the $10 billion? I mean, I don't think you need to be some 
political or economic genius to figure out the answer to that. There's a lot of complexities and nuances to this story that a lot of people simply don't realize. And by the way, President Biden, he's got a long history with OPEC. Just remember that. He, he wrote a letter to then-President Clinton when he was a senator urging them to sue OPEC. He's been involved with the NOPEC legislation going all the way back to the, I think it was the early 80s. So eh, there's a long history there. Maybe that's part of it. Yeah, yeah, I, but you call it nuance. I, it doesn't seem that nuanced, Ryan. It's, it hits you over the head what the realities of the situation are right now. Our next guest says, in his words, OPEC is actively fleecing the American people and destabilizing the economy. Let's bring in Congressman Ro Khanna of California, whose district includes parts of Silicon Valley. Ro, it's good to see you. Congressman, it's been a while. Good to have you on. Uh, I guess most people agree this is a snub to, to, to the President Biden and to the United States, no doubt about it. But then there are some uh, disagreement about the motivation. Do you think, I mean, the Saudis need money. They love money. They've got, you know, their own internal um, uh, concerns in their country domestically. There's no, their citizens don't pay taxes. Everything is based on, on oil revenue. So they like high prices, right? Or are they really doing this to help uh, Putin with his, to, to fund that war in Ukraine? What do you think their motivation is? Joe, here's what I know. They need the United States of America more than anything. We supply the parts for their air force. We provide them with weapons. It would take them years to transition to China or Russia for any of those parts or weapons. Their air force literally would be grounded. Uh, I don't know whether their motivation was to strengthen Putin, but here's the fact, it does strengthen Putin. I don't know whether their motivation was to hurt the American people, but the fact is it does hurt the American people. And there should be bipartisan outrage and a demand that they reverse the system or there will be consequences. They point to, uh, and I don't know whether you think this is right or wrong either, they, there, w there could be central bankers around the world. There could be a sharp slowdown. Uh, in global growth. And in, in previous recessions, uh, we've seen oil drop precipitously. All the, you know, we never thought it would see 20 or $30 a barrel again, but that, that can happen. So couldn't they argue that they're just protecting their, uh, you know, pr protecting the revenue that they need that's generated through oil? At the expense of the American public. I mean, it's not acceptable. If, if they were a country that was not dependent Joe, on us, that would be one thing. But they literally, their entire military is dependent on us. We uh, were supporting them when they launched the brutal war in Yemen, which continues the largest humanitarian crisis in the world. I mean, before Putin's invasion of Ukraine, it was the biggest foreign policy crisis. They murdered Khashoggi, who was a Washington Post journalist. So now they're coming in just when oil prices have come down just when the American people finally are getting under four bucks. And they are taking this decision in contrast to not just what the president has said. I don't think you could get a Republican senator on or a Republican House member saying, yes, we think it's a good thing that Saudi Arabia is cut, cutting oil. So, well, let me uh, read something I heard earlier this morning from uh, former Senator Judd Gregg. Who, he's not a flamethrower. I'm sure you know him. He's a he's a reasoned, wonderful, wonderful man. Um, and he just spelled it out here. Biden, President Biden goes hat in hand to autocracies, empowers Russia, 
is willing to underwrite a leftist repressive regime in South America, but continues his administration's efforts to undermine U.S. oil and gas production in the name of his green energy elitism. And that's why we're in this mess right now. Have your views evolved on that? Because, uh, you, you know, I've seen video of you um, uh, so, sort of asking our oil producers, why haven't you matched the production cuts that we've seen from the, the oil producers over in, in Europe? And now we see what Europe's facing. Have you evolved to, to some extent on that view? Well, Joe, I, I think that the full clip has to be in context. I was talking about long-term moving towards uh, a green energy, but short-term I have called clearly, even in the Wall Street Journal, for an increase of oil production in the United States. Here's the facts, Joe. We, we are producing more oil today than we did at any time uh, under the previous administration, and I support efforts to short-term increase domestic oil production. The president supports it. Uh, so, you know, I mean, there may be a difference of opinion with some of my Republican colleagues on what we should be doing in the long term. And in the long term, I've said that there should be a, a transition to, to clean energy. But in the short term, and by the short term, I mean over the next uh, year, it, we need more production. I don't think we're back to 2019 levels yet, Roe. Um, so I don't, I don't know if that if that is, uh, is factually correct. But do you think, I mean, in your... Heart, you know, in the bottom of your, your soul, do you think that we're doing everything that we can in this country to, to make it easier to produce hydrocarbons right now? Well, you know we're not. Well, the question is, what would we do that's going to have a short-term production increase? I mean, I, you know, and I, I, if the president wants to call in the oil executives and others, and if they have ideas, which what short-term that it would do. Not that we're going to build a 10-year new infrastructure for things that aren't going to pay out for two or three years. That's not fair. But if they have ideas, here's one idea. Why don't we put a ban on gasoline and ex and the export of oils? I mean, that is something the White House is considering. Uh, you know, Fox News runs about how we sold uh, oil or gas to China. Let's ban it. Let's have more domestic uh, supply. Uh, that's something maybe we can come to an agreement on. Hey, Congressman, I, I hear you about wanting to make sure we conserve all our oil and natural gas here. But if we were to ban natural gas in particular, wouldn't that really crush our European allies who are really feeling the worst brunt of what Russia is doing to them right now? I mean, it might help us, but it is going to crush our allies who are facing much bigger problems. That's a very fair point. And I would have an exception on natural gas for our European allies, but we could uh, still do a lot by having an export ban generally on, on gasoline uh, and other refined products, but have uh, an exception on natural gas or some other things for our allies. I mean, that is a, a fair point. It shouldn't just be a blanket uh, ban. Congressman, it, it, just shifting gears a little bit uh, to, to a wealth tax, I think you, you brought that up again. I'm, I'm still wondering, you know, how, how we can do that, whether you really think it's feasible. I mean, we, we couldn't even do carried interests. The, the Democrats, I mean, folded like a cheap suit on, on, for what? I don't know. I don't know what they got instead, but you, you, you can't even get that. How could we possibly ever line up enough votes for some type of wealth? And do you want to just do it to anybody that, that has a certain amount or does it have to be if they, uh, you know, had, have never paid capital gains because they've never sold their shares and then they're borrowing against that? Is it you want to actually mark to market assets to do that? Or what's the, the methodology? Because, you know, the devil's in the details. 
Well, Joe, as popular as you are, you won't qualify for the wealth tax. This is only <laughs> uh, for people over uh, $50 million. And look, I've got the district with the most billionaires. Right. I don't understand how this is a hard vote. They keep sending me back, the folks in the, in the district. And my view is that 25% wealth has been lost in this country since 1980 by the working class and the middle class. At the same time, people have made extraordinary wealth. And some of it is justified. They've built great companies. They've done great innovation. I have a lot of admiration for Steve Jobs. I don't agree with everything about Elon Musk, but I respect things that he has built. But they can afford to pay 2 3% on the totality of their assets. Then people say, what about capital flight? 93% of American wealth is invested in America. Where, do they, where are they going to take it? To China? To Russia? Give me a break. They're going to keep it in the United States. Maybe we won't collect all of it. Maybe it'll be 80% because some people will buy art, but the vast majority will pay the tax. They'll grumble and then they'll get over it. And then we can invest that money in patriotic things like childcare and preschool and uh, building manufacturing here. Congressman, thank you. Always good to be on. Joe Rowe. Rowe we haven't decided Joe Rowe or Rowe, Rowe Joe, but 2024 Joe is coming. only shot. Only no, shot. no, I want Rowe Joe. I, want Rowe. I, don't, I don't want to work as hard as the president. I want to be the vice president. Just kind of you know, not do quite as much. You're going to have to go around the country selling Good, the you go solve the problem at the border. Yeah, solve the problem at the border. The border, we can solve that, Joe. I know we could do that. that that's common sense. George W. Bush right. had the It right does seem like support. we could, and we need workers anyway. So let's, it, we got to fix that. All right, thanks, Rome. From a flat tire in the city to a dead battery on a distant drive, AAA is partnering with T-Mobile for Business to accelerate response times and get more drivers back on the road fast. Our nationwide connectivity powers location telematics, so AAA's fleet can find stranded drivers quickly while being fully equipped with the in-vehicle tools to have answers when they get there. This is elevating the member experience. This is AAA with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. That's the podcast for today. Thank you for listening. Squawk Box is hosted by Joe Kernan, Becky Quick, and Andrew Ross Sorkin weekday mornings on CNBC at 6 a.m. Eastern to get the smartest takes and analysis from our full three-hour broadcast right into your ears. Shorter, though. Follow Squawk Pod wherever you get your podcasts. We'll meet you back here tomorrow. We are clear. Thanks, guys. From their innovative practice facility to unmatched views from the fairway, the PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with 5G solutions from T-Mobile for Business. Together, we're using AI-powered analytics to expand coaching tools and bringing fans closer to the pros with 5G-connected cameras. This is game-changing innovation. This is the PGA of America with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now.